And now it's no, it's no secret, is it, that a lot of people aren't big fans of their boss. In 2011, a movie came out called Horrible Bosses, and to promote the film, uh, that Warner Brothers set up a giant voodoo doll resembling a corporate boss in downtown Montreal, and people were given the opportunity to vent their frustrations by, by stabbing and hitting it with, a large, with large needles. And people took to it quite enthusiastically. They were you know, given the opportunity to visualize their boss and go at it. Now, if you've ever had a bad boss, or if you're uh, currently under one, you'll know that it can be demotivating. It makes you not want to work for them. It's frustrating. It affects everything you do in the workplace, doesn't it? So it's worth asking, what kind of boss is Jesus? When Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven and he took his seat at the right hand of God on the throne. He's now ruling the universe. Or in other words, as the great theologian Colin Buchanan puts it, Jesus is the boss. But what kind of boss is he? And what's it like to work for King Jesus? Is he a hard taskmaster, always cracking the whip and asking for more? Is he strict? Is he a killjoy? Just giving us rules that make the Christian life miserable? Well, in Luke 19, Jesus tells us a parable that gets to the heart of this question of what he's like. Uh, so if you've got a Bible in front of you, uh, please do keep it open and let's see if we can unpack it together. Now, th- first of all, to understand what Jesus is saying, we've got to ask this question, why? Why did Jesus teach this parable? We'll have a look in your Bible with me where we find the answer in verse 11. It says, while they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because, here's the reason, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So why did Jesus tell this parable? He told it because he was getting near Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was about to appear. But what does it mean that they thought the kingdom of God was about to appear? What is that phrase, the kingdom of God, referring to? Well, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's not talking about heaven. When the Bible, the kingdom of God means the reign of God, the kingship of God. And the appearing of the kingdom of God is the time of God's reign through his Messiah. At the time when God's uh, promised king would come and rule from his throne. And you guys as a church have been uh, working through Luke's gospel together. And by the time you get all the way here up to Luke 19, you've seen him teaching and healing and driving out demons. And people are starting to think, hey, I think this Jesus guy could be the Messiah. Because, of course, it's obvious to us now in hindsight, isn't it? It's obvious to us that Jesus is the Messiah. But for them, they were wondering, they were looking for clues. But people are starting to think, I think this guy is the real deal. We think this is him. And if he is the Messiah, God's chosen king to rule, well, guess what? We're almost about to arrive at Jerusalem, the capital city where the, the king would rule from. Maybe it's all about to happen. Maybe the reign of God through his Messiah is happening now. So imagine the excitement. 
the anticipation in the air, kind of like that feeling back during lockdowns when you're waiting for Mark McGowan press conference and he was always a little bit late. You're hanging on the edge of your seats. You're waiting for what's going to happen. They're wondering, is Jesus about to take his throne and, and wipe out God's enemies? But Luke 19 verse 11 tells us that the reason Jesus tells this parable is to burst that bubble. To tell them, no, the kingdom of God is not about to appear when I arrive in Jerusalem. Yes, he is God's king, God's Messiah, uh, but the timing is not what they expect. Jesus is telling them in this parable that he's going to leave for a while and eventually come back. And it's only when he comes back that the kingdom of God will appear in its fullness. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in verse 12 as he begins the parable. Notice its dynamic. Verse 12. Jesus said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, notice that this noble doesn't take his throne immediately. He first has to do what? Travel to a distant country. And only later would he return as king. Now, in the ancient world, to travel to a distant country took a long time. Uh, Earlier this week, I was at a work conference in Queensland, um, which is not a distant country, but it might become one if the WA Independence Party gets its way. But it's a long way. You know, it required a journey of over 3,000 kilometres. Now, with modern aviation, that journey of 3,000 kilometres took just about four hours of flying. Not too bad. But back in Jesus' day, things took a fair bit longer. In Ezra chapter 7, for example, we get a little uh, insight into this. We're told that Ezra and his crew travelled from Babylon to Jerusalem, a journey of 1,500 kilometres, so half the distance from here to Queensland, and it took them four months. And that was a one-way trip, never mind if you've got to go there and come back. So when Jesus says the noble has got to travel to a distant country and then have himself appointed king and then come back, what's he saying? He's saying, guys, don't expect that the kingdom of God to appear at once right now. We're going to have to wait a while for Jesus to return as king. Now, that's the key point that frames the whole parable. And in light of that, the key question then becomes, what does it look like for you and me to serve King Jesus in the meantime? How are we to live in this time gap before the return of the king? And what kind of king is he? Well, Jesus tells us and tells us about himself and what kind of king he is by introducing us to two groups of people in this parable. So let's look at each in turn. First, the subjects who hate the king, just briefly in verse 14 and 27. And the bulk of the parable is focused on the second group of people, the servants of the king, in verse 13 and verses 15 to 26. So first up, let's look at the subjects who hate the king. Now these guys only get two brief references, but they bookend the parable at the start and finish, so Jesus wants us to notice them. So have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 19, verses 14, where they first get mentioned. Check it out. The king-to-be is now off on his journey. Then in verse 14, Jesus says, But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our elder. Sorry, I mean our king. Sorry about that, Jim. Uh, The man was made king, however. And then have a look in your Bibles with me at verse 27. This is some serious church discipline where the king says in verse 27, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. 
Now, this is pretty confronting, isn't it? It seems brutal, cold-hearted, even tyrannical. If you thought your boss was bad, imagine him returning from head office and doing this. But there's two really important things to keep in mind as we look at these words here. Firstly, on one level, I want us to see that this isn't as, as extreme as we might at first think. We've got to be careful to be aware of our own cultural biases and the own lens that we bring to Scripture. Jesus lived in a very different time and culture to ours. And in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East where Jesus was, this was actually a very common thing to happen. If someone rebels against the king, everyone knew what happened. They would be killed. Yes, it feels brutal and severe to us from our very different culture and time. It certainly does to me. I'm sure it does to you as well. But Jesus' original hearers would have thought, yeah, well, fair enough. They got what they deserved. In fact, just a few years before Jesus spoke this parable, the Romans responded to a rebellion among the Jews by crucifying 2,000 rebels along the main road, along the main highway. So as you travel from Jerusalem um, upwards, you just see pole after pole after pole with these people strung up naked, dying agonizingly slowly over days and days and days. That's what, the ancient, in the ancient world, that's what happened to those who rebelled against the authorities. I mean, compared to that, this is humane. So, so that's the first thing to be aware of. We need to be aware of our own cultural biases. But, but secondly, we still need to feel the force of this. It's not soft and cuddly, is it? It may not have been seen as excessive when Jesus first told this parable, but it still is confronting, isn't it? Jesus is showing us here that when he returns as king, he's returning to bring judgment. And he's going to bring swift justice on all those who have rebelled against him. The Bible is clear, isn't it? The wages of sin is what? It's death. The penalty for rebelling against the author of life is to have that life taken away. The punishment fits the crime. It's confronting, but it's just. You know, Jesus is the rightful king, not just over Christians, but over everyone. And one day when he returns, he'll bring justice on those who didn't want him to be king over them. What does this parable, what does part of the parable show us about Jesus' character? It shows us that Jesus is just. And again, this isn't a popular thing to point out in our culture today, but actually we live in a world that is crying out for justice. A couple of years ago, George Floyd was killed uh, with the knee of a police officer named Derek Chauvin on his neck. And to say that there was outrage would be an understatement. Uh, That police officer, Derek, was charged and his trial was held just over a year ago as the world watched closely. And over 23 million people watched live as his verdict was announced. They clearly cared, didn't they? Why? Because they wanted him to receive mercy? No, because they wanted him to receive justice. The hashtag justice for Floyd went, uh, went viral. Thousands of people said they wanted him to be held accountable, to be punished. Now, now, what do you think people would have thought if the judge had said, now look, Derek, I know you've done a bad thing, but I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm not into, not into this whole justice thing. 
seems a bit outdated, seems a bit harsh. I'm a forgiving guy. I'm going to let you off the hook. What do you think the reaction would have been? People have been outraged, wouldn't they? Why? Because when we recognise the crime as serious, we long for justice to be done. From deep within the human soul, God has written it on our hearts that bringing justice on perpetrators is actually deeply and fundamentally good. When we recognise the crime as serious, we long for justice to be done. The only problem for us is that when it comes to our rebellion against God and our rebellion against Jesus, the rightful King, we often fail to recognise that crime as serious, don't we? doesn't feel like much of a big deal. But it is a big deal. In verse 14 of this uh, parable, Jesus said that the subjects hated him and said, we don't want this man to be our king. And that's exactly how most people in our world treat Jesus, isn't it? They say, we don't want this man to be our king. In my ministry at UWA, I've met countless secular uni students who have no interest in Jesus. They write him off as a a nice moral teacher to try to put him in a safe little box that they can ignore. We might think, well, it's not a big deal, right? It's not like they hate him. But it is a big deal. We have to recognise what a monumental injustice it is to treat Jesus this way. As we just sung about earlier today, Jesus is the one who made this world that we live in. Jesus made and sustains every human being. He he upholds our very breath by the power of his word. And yet to use that very breath, that very life that he's upholding in each one of us day by day, to turn against him, there is no greater injustice or crime than that. And in Luke 19, Jesus is saying that when he returns, he is going to bring about true and final justice. Jesus is showing us that he is just. Now that's confronting, but for a world that's crying out for justice, it's actually deeply good news. But Jesus isn't only just. The second thing he shows us from, about himself in this parable is that he is generous. Check it out. Have a look in your Bibles with me at verse 13. Before he left, what did the man do? He called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, a mina was a unit of a measurement. In today's money, it was, about, it was worth about 10 or 15 grand. So it's quite a bit of money. And he asked them to put it back while he's gone. Then in verse 15, uh, when he gets back, he calls for the servants to find out how they went. Check it out. Have a look at verse 16 in your Bibles with me. The first one came to him and said, Sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Now, we see the extreme generosity of the king in at least two ways here. First of all, notice that the minas were a gift. We might have assumed, I certainly did when I first read this, that when he originally gave all that money to the servants and asked them to put it to work, he would ask for it back and he would ask for the profits himself. But notice that that's actually not what he does. Notice in these verses that he never actually asks 
for the money back. That's confirmed down in verses 24 to 26. I don't have it on uh, the slide there at the moment, but have a look in your Bibles there at verses 24 to 26, where the king says he's given all the meanings to the faithful servants and that to those who have more, more will be given. And they're blown away by his generosity. And the one servant who, who, who doesn't serve the king, who, miss, who, who treats it badly, the king doesn't even take that money back for himself. He just gives it to another one. His generosity is amazing. So that's the, that's the first way we see his generosity. The second way we see his generosity is that he makes the faithful servants co-rulers with him. Verse 17, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. He takes these lowly servants who, by rights, he could have just said to them, great, thanks for watching out for my money, I'm going to take all that back, back to serving. That's not what he does, is it? He says, you keep it all, you keep the thousands that I've given to you, and come rule with me. And brothers and sisters, this is just what Jesus generously gives to all who faithfully serve him in this life. I don't know if you know that. Jesus doesn't just say, uh, believe in me, trust in me, and then you can come um, be in heaven and serve me there too. Jesus actually promises that we will reign with him in his new creation, alongside and under him, bringing uh, peace and justice and goodness for all eternity. Now, you might be thinking, okay, maybe some people get to do that, but surely not me. I mean, I've never done anything impressive enough to reign with Jesus. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 17. Because you've been trustworthy in what? A very small matter. Jesus isn't looking for impressive people. He's looking out for trustworthy and faithful people who serve him in even small, very small matters, in seemingly insignificant ways, encouraging someone in their faith, helping out a friend who's walking through mental illness, appointing someone at work or on campus to Jesus, caring for the poor and lonely, opening the Bible with a friend to encourage them, serving faithfully in your church as, as an elder or at the sound desk or however you might serve, cooking sausages for lunch after dinner to keep the new elder happy. <laughs> Don't think anything too small is too small to be noticed. In Matthew 10, 42, Jesus says, If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. I mean, if you're out in kids' ministry, you don't even need to give them crackers and fruit. All you need to give them is water. (laughs) Jesus sees even the smallest acts of service and when he returns, you will find him to be a generous king. So maybe you've been serving in in, uh, hard or seemingly insignificant ways. Maybe you've been discouraged and feel like you want to give up. and Maybe you feel like no one sees it. Don't give up. Jesus sees it. Jesus notices. And I tell you the truth, you will certainly not lose your reward because Jesus is generous. Now, the first two servants in the parable serve the king, they live for the king, and therefore they experience the generosity of the king. But sadly, the third servant doesn't. Have a look in your Bibles with me at verses 20 to 23. 
Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did I, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit in a bank so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? But of course, that's not what he was on about, was it? Now, here's the key question. What do you think went wrong for this last servant? Was it that he was lazy? Was it that he was not working hard enough? No, that's actually not his problem. This is so important to grasp. His problem was that he'd completely misjudged the character of his master. He wrongly saw his master as a hard man who takes what he doesn't put in. But the irony, of course, is that the master had just given him all this money and he wasn't about to take it back. It was a gift if he was only willing to receive it. And the master says, if you really thought I was like this, if I was going to take it back from you, if I was really such a a person like that, why didn't you just put it in the bank so I could take it back with interest? But of course, the, the master was never going to take it back in the first place. The servant's problem was not that he didn't work hard enough. It's that he'd misjudged the character of the king. And because of that, he didn't want to serve the king. And this has huge implications for us today. How you view Jesus will shape whether or not you want to live for Jesus. If you view him as a hard man, a hard taskmaster, always cracking the whip, someone who just takes and takes and just gives you rules to follow, there's no way you'll want to live for Jesus. And to be honest, I wouldn't blame you. Who wants to live for someone like that? I sure wouldn't. But once you recognize Jesus as a generous king, a king who doesn't take and take, but rather gives and gives, a king who didn't come to be served, but rather to serve us, a king who came to give his life for us so that we might receive life everlasting, a king who would lay down his life for you, who came so that you might have life and have it to the full, Once we see Jesus for who he truly is, there is no greater joy than to live for a king like that. There is no greater joy than to serve others in the name of the king who first served us. In this parable, we see that Jesus is just and Jesus is generous. But you may have picked up on the fact that this introduces a pretty difficult tension. Because to be just, by definition, to be just is to give people exactly what they deserve. Not worse and not better. But to be generous is to give people better than what they deserve. How can the two coexist? How can Jesus possibly be both just and generous at the same time? Well, the reason Jesus can be both perfectly just and also perfectly generous is because of the cross. The cross is where we see Jesus uh, displaying both the justice and the generosity of God on full display. Because in the cross, Jesus willingly takes the punishment, the justice that we deserve for our rebellion against him. And because he's now borne that justice in our place, 
He can now be just and yet generously give us far better than we deserve. Forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption into his family, an eternal inheritance to come, co-rulers with Jesus in the new creation, all of that is far better than we deserve. And yet he can give it richly and generously while still being just. The cross is where we see that Jesus is both perfectly just and perfectly generous. And the more we see that, the more we see Jesus for who he is, the more it will move us to want to serve him from the heart as we long for his return. So brothers and sisters, keep serving our Lord Jesus. Even in the small stuff that maybe no one else sees. Jesus sees what you're doing and when he returns, you will find him to be an unbelievably generous king.